Chapter 6, The Social Justice Agenda. As we turn our attention to the final five questions that McLaren is asking, through which he would like to redefine Christianity, I think it is relevant to understand what the motivation behind asking these questions really is. Since these questions contain issues that can be looked at as peripheral and not central doctrinal issues, they can be reasonably placed into a category that we might call secondary doctrinal issues. These particular issues are not the central theme of the gospel of Christ. However, the New Age movement adherents refer to these issues as social justice issues, and they place them at the very top of their priorities list. Remember, the New Age movement's purpose is to totally redefine religious thought and belief systems with the ultimate goal of reaching total peace and harmony and unity within a one-world government system. In order to achieve this goal, the New Age movement must literally turn Christianity, the world's largest religious belief system, upside down and change it totally from within. This entails a refocusing of the main tenets of the faith from a Christ-centered gospel to a man-centered gospel. And their efforts are in full swing, even as you read this book. These efforts are spearheaded by many financially and politically powerful individuals, some who prefer anonymity, for good reason, and some who openly stand in the spotlight proudly. So what is social justice anyway? Well, the concept of social justice has been around for centuries, really, and puts forth the view that there has been a vast amount of unfairness which has occurred in the world, especially where economic equality is concerned. Most social justice advocates believe that wealth should be evenly distributed. This means that wealth would have to be collected by the government and redistributed to the poor in equal shares by the government. This, theoretically, would completely obliterate the need for wars and other types of strife because everyone now has equal wealth. The playing field has been leveled. Does this sound familiar to you? It should. It's what the current U.S. government administration, starting with the president, is desperately trying to achieve while you go to work every day to try to support your family and secure your financial future. The government wants to take whatever wealth you accrue through legislation and then give what you have worked hard for to someone who won't work. That's what social justice really is at its very core. Some, like me, would call it socialism or Marxism. Did I say that out loud? You bet I did. And by the way, historically, it has always failed wherever it has been tried. Just look at your history books, folks. The main problem with this social justice philosophy is that it doesn't mesh with what the Bible says. In, Thessal in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, and I quote, For even when we were with you, 
this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Unquote. Abundantly clear. Even our founding fathers talked about this social justice system in a very negative way. And I'll quote Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Joseph Milligan dated April 6, 1816. Quote, To take from one, because it is thought his own industry and that of his father's has acquired too much, in order to spare to others who, or whose fathers, have not exercised equal industry and skill, is to violate arbitrarily the first principle of association, the guarantee to everyone the free exercise of his industry and the fruits acquired by it. Unquote. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. And he was so very correct. The very idea that we should allow government to collect our wealth away from us and allow government to give it to those who don't or won't work is outrageous and it flies directly in the face of what the Bible says about giving in the parable of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, whom Jesus told to, quote, sell all he had and give it to the poor and follow me, unquote. What Jesus was telling this young man was that if he wanted to truly follow him, that he would have to give his wealth to the poor as a sign that his heart was right, that he loved Jesus more than his wealth. Now that, is true giving. The fact is that the Bible states that we are to be charitable towards the poor and needy, and that we are to give to them out of love, not because we have to as a matter of mandate by the government. This contradictory heretical gospel that is being deployed in our churches today is a social gospel, a gospel that is not primarily concerned with the sacrificial atoning death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and how God's grace is available to all as a means of salvation, it is a false man-centered gospel which seeks to place its emphasis and priority upon man himself first and foremost and its secondary emphasis on the saving of our earthly environment. I am sure that you can see here that this is not the gospel of Christ. Christ doesn't even get third billing in this false gospel. Obviously, the true gospel of Christ and this false social gospel simply cannot skip merrily hand in hand down a primrose path together. Why not? I think Paul Proctor of newswithviews.com summed it up rather nicely. He states, and I quote, the social gospel and its increasingly popular social justice campaign is not an acceptable substitute for preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Its promoters all too often set aside the vertical, spiritual, and eternal issues of sin, rebellion, obedience, holiness, and reverence toward God in order to redirect the focus toward more horizontal, physical, and temporal values. In the end, the flesh is, for a time, fed and comforted, but the souls of sinners are left abandoned to biblical ignorance because disobedient do-gooders have spiritually sidetracked the church and its mission, unquote. That was from a statement he issued on newswithviews.com on January 6th, 2010. And I say amen, Paul, 
that's telling it like it is. Other examples of this false gospel are Rick Warren's peace plan. And another example is the U.S. government's faith-based initiative program, which allows the federal government to reach its secular humanism arm directly into the church. And it doesn't belong there for obvious reasons. Allow me to sum it up this way. If the church allows this secular humanistic social gospel into its hallowed halls, then it is putting its very existence at risk for it will subject itself to the government. And the church must be subject to Christ alone, not the government. Well, now that the political portion of of this introduction is passed, let's review McLaren's last five questions. They sure are interesting, and I'm sure that you'll see why there must be some debate. Question number six, quote, what do we do about the church, unquote. McLaren states, quote, the questions we consider in these pages will have to be grappled with in local faith communities. As they inspire new insights and conclusions, those insights and conclusions will have to be lived out in local congregations, unquote. He then says, quote, so we ask. In light of the new understandings opened up by the previous questions, what must change for the church, the local church, the denomination, and the larger community of Christians? How are we to conceive of God's spirit at work in the church and in the world? How do we cooperate with God's work in, through, outside of, and in spite of the church, unquote. Response number six to question number six. It goes without saying, really, that if McLaren and Warren and so many others who want to change or redefine Christianity itself, that the church itself would also have to redefine its purpose. That, of course, is their goal, to have the church willingly change and redefine its main purpose from the dissemination of the gospel of Christ to the social gospel of the new age. Please remember that this new social gospel places its emphasis on how man relates to man and how man relates to the earth or his physical environment. It may just be my imagination, but as I read the Bible, I see absolutely nothing that states that mankind or earth is the focus. For instance, I read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, quote, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, unquote. What I see here is that it is Jesus Christ who should, who should have preeminence, not service to the needy, not saving our environment, but it is service to Jesus Christ that should be the priority. It is when the church takes its eye off of what should be its preeminent focus, Jesus Christ, in favor of more politically expedient causes, that it starts sliding down a very slippery slope to its own destruction. And folks, that's really the penultimate goal of the New Age movement and its proponents, the destruction of Christianity and the church. McLaren refers to 
quote-unquote new understandings that the first five questions should have opened up. What new, understand, uh, what new understandings is he talking about? Well, I, I can answer that. He's talking about the new understandings that you will come to once you, one, question what the Bible is all about, two, question the Bible's inspiration and authority, three, question the very character of God, four, question who the Bible says Jesus was, and five, question the Bible's message and intent. It's those heretical and apostate new understandings that he's talking about. McLaren is slick and crafty, yet very blatant in the way in which he's trying to supplant fundamental Christian doctrine. He softens you up by getting you to question your fundamental beliefs first, because he knows that if he can get you to do that, then the other attempted deceptions will occur at a much faster, easier pace. In a nutshell, he wants to change everything about the church. He says so in his book entitled, Everything Must Change. <laughs> the title is pretty self-explanatory, don't you think? He wants the church to become an agent for social justice, and he wants it to no longer focus on its primary missions, which are to edify or build up the body of Christ and evangelize to win souls to Christ. He asks the question, quote, how do we cooperate with God's work in, through, outside of, and in spite of the church, unquote? I think I know what he means when he says, in spite of the church. It seems to me that he's referring to the parts of the church that will have nothing to do with the New Age movement's agenda. Uh, yes, that's the part of the church that will stay true to the gospel of Christ, the part of the church that refuses to adulterate its doctrine and fundamental belief system. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what he means when he says, in spite of. One more thing. I think it's fairly difficult to know what God's work in the church is all about if you're not a Christian. Just a thought. Question number seven. Quote, can we find a way to address human sexuality without fighting about it? Unquote. McLaren begins, quote, our acute anxieties about human sexuality may be related in general to our discomfort with our humanity. Unquote. What? He says, quote, they may also flow from our dissatisfaction with conventional Christian accounts of the human being, unquote. I'm not dissatisfied with that. He says, quote, in light of new discoveries in neurobiology, psychopharmacology, anthropology, and related fields, unquote. Oh, there's science again, uh, replacing God as authority. In particular, the issue of homosexuality preoccupies, divides, and obsesses many churches and denominations like no other issue. Not only do people disagree on the issue, but they are unwilling to tolerate disagreement among their fellow Christians, in spite of the fact that they tolerate diversity of opinion on many other issues, important issues like pacifism, nuclear war, genocide, environmental destruction, wealth and poverty, torture, and consumptive affluence. Now, if that's not a list of social justice issues, then I just don't know what is. 
Quote, McLaren says, quote, so we ask, why is this issue so hot right now? How do the previous questions open up new ways to think about homosexuality, gender identity, and sexuality in general? Can we move beyond paralyzing polarization into constructive dialogue about the whole range of challenges we face regarding human sexuality? Unquote. Response number seven to question number seven. Can I begin this by asking what McLaren means by our discomfort with our humanity in the opening statement of question seven? Nah, never mind. I understand. New agers must be uncomfortable with their humanity. That must be why they are constantly trying to elevate their sinful status, their sinful human status, to the sinless, perfect status of God. I've got to tell you, as I read book after book, New Age author after New Age author, I see and feel a prevailing sentiment and a recurrent theme of dissatisfaction with everything. As we have gone through and reviewed these questions, I'm certain that if I've done my job correctly, you've noticed it too. It is truly sad to see so many deceived and unhappy people, people that really don't have any idea as to what it's like to have the peace of God, which passes all understanding in Philippians 4.7. I pray that they too will someday know what it is to be a child of God. To the point McLaren wants to know why we Christians just can't seem to tolerate homosexuality. And the answer is simple. We're not supposed to. But why? Because God himself doesn't. It is well known that God destroyed two cities because of this particular sin in Genesis 18. God destroyed these cities because their sin, homosexuality, was Quote, very grievous, unquote, Genesis 18, verse 20. Those are God's words, not mine. Very grievous does not denote that this particular sin of homosexuality is just a minor sin. This was a sin that literally grieved the heart of the Lord. So it's often asked why God considers it such a grievous sin, a sin that he hates. The answer is that the sin of homosexuality is the ultimate rebellion against God's original plan for mankind. I suppose I'd better back that statement up with the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, it says, and I quote, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that, which is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust toward one another men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are inconvenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, and malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The Bible is abundantly clear concerning the subject of homosexuality. It states that the people that engage in this type of behavior do it because, one, they have changed the truth of God, his original plan for mankind's procreation, into a lie, something completely opposed to God's original plan for mankind's procreation. Two, because of this rebellion against God, they dishonor their bodies, which are God's creation. And three, it is against nature for a man to forsake the natural use of the woman in favor of non-procreative activities with another man, and likewise, women with other women instead of natural procreative activities with a man. Number four, they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. They choose not to consider God's natural plan for procreative acts of sex between a man and a woman. And five, God gives them over to a reprobate mind. This does not mean that God gives his permission for them to do these things. This is an actual judicial punishment by God. As a result of these individuals' continued rebellion against God and their continued unrepentant, vile actions. In short, God hates the sin of homosexuality according to his holy word. God does not hate the sinner, however. With that in mind, I would like to address some personal feelings that I have on this subject. Please bear with me. I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Knowing, as most Christians do, that God hates the sin but not the sinner, he gave his only begotten son so that anyone could be saved. Anyone. And it literally infuriates me, I admit it, when I see groups like Westboro Baptist Church showing up at funerals and varied other public and private events, proudly displaying their God hates fags sign, as well as other crude and morally repugnant displays of their utter ignorance and imbecility. Anyone that thinks that these people have anything to do with being truly Christian are mistaken. Groups that participate in this type of gratuitous display of arrogance and ignorance have the freedom to do so in this country, and they will more than likely continue to do so as long as they are given an audience to play to and the attention they so covet after. It is the ignorant, irresponsible actions of groups like this that help to foster the world's incorrect notions of what fundamental Bible-believing Christians truly are. Allow me to separate and distance truly fundamental Christians from this type of arrogant, hateful, extremist group. They are a blight on the church and represent in no way what Christianity truly is. So, 
In summation to question number seven, Christians do not hate homosexuals. We know their sin is a reproach to God, but we do not hate them as people. We pray that they will repent of their arrogance toward God and their rebellion against his original plan for mankind. Now, there is no room for debate on this particular subject, and I, for one, will not debate it. I will, however, continue to witness to homosexuals in a kind, loving manner, telling them about the amazing love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and how repentance and salvation are just as available to them as to anyone else if they will just accept it. There is one more very important comment to make on the issue of homosexuality in the church. Knowing, as we Christians do, that God hates the sin of homosexuality, what makes anyone think that God would endorse a homosexual, male or female, to lead a church as a pastor? This is an atrocity. For churches of today to allow this to occur and sanction it in order to be politically correct is for the church to betray God. Homosexuals have chosen to rebel against and reject God's original plan for mankind. So how can we in the church allow someone who rebels against God to stand behind the pulpit and entrust them to get the message of the gospel right? This is a travesty and a betrayal that involves severe ramifications for the church. This is just another example of how many of the mainline denominations have decided not only just to wink at, but totally embrace the New Age movement's social justice doctrine. I guess the church feels that it's best to include everyone so as not to offend anyone by preaching the word of God. Churches that are preaching and practicing this very doctrine of Satan should be ashamed and they should be fearful of God's retribution for it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take uh, and close this session for right now. And when we return for our next episode, we will continue with question number eight from Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christianity in our reading of chapter six of The Judas Epidemic. Come back and join us. We'll be with you shortly.